Hello and welcome to the Creative Scramble. My name is Carl Thompson and today I'm joined by wildlife filmmaker Simon Vasher. How's it going, Simon? Yeah, it's going good. Thanks, Carl. Yeah, I'm currently um, sitting uh, in the conservatory enjoying the sunshine, wearing a pair of sunglasses, having a cup of tea. Very much the day off for uh, a freelancer, so enjoying that time as much as I can. That's amazing. So can you just give us um, you know, a quick intro into your your job? Obviously, you've just said you're a cameraman. Yeah. You know, what is... What is a wildlife filmmaker? What do you, what do you do? Well, it's <clears throat> yeah. Strictly speaking, I'm not just um, a wildlife filmmaker. Um, you know, that's one of my many passions I've I've got in filmmaking. Um, it started off being um, a passion when I was very young. I thought, you know, when I watched Attenborough when I was about five six years old, I thought, goodness me, I've I've got to be behind the camera there. I've got to be behind the camera. I've got to be filming that animal. I've got to be filming. That, that experience that that cameraman's having because that that's all I sort of want to do. Um, and then years went by and sort of went through school and, and college and things and still this underlying desire to want to do that, um, that job was still present. Um, you know, and so when I got to sort of early 20s, I sort of um, sort of jacked in my sort of full-time job that I had at the time and I thought, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna do this full. I'm gonna go fully into this. Um, and actually found it was actually quite hard work getting into wildlife filmmaking. Um, it's very, very niche. It's a very niche industry. Um, and it's something that, you, you know, you, you sort of, you can study for and train for, but nothing prepares you for when you actually go into it. So, um, you know, aside from doing the wildlife filmmaking, I've also taken on other kinds of work and also also kind of interest in the filmmaking industry because it's, it's not just the wildlife that interests me, it's that it's the human sort of um, interaction with wildlife and it's that sort of the border between um, the people stories and the wildlife that interests me now. And there's also a lot more um, scope for that kind of story making. You know, you can, there's a lot more audience, a broader base of audience for that kind of thing. What kind of skills would you say are required to be specifically a wildlife filmmaker? I know you said you do other things, but let's yeah. we'll just focus mm. on wildlife for yeah. now. What, what skills yeah. do you have or would you say other people need? I would say with wildlife filmmaking, um, you need a lot of patience, obviously, um, especially if you're watching animals or tracking animals um, in the wild, um, especially if it's near habitation anywhere, 90% of the world where it's populated, it's going to be hard work to get those shots. So you have to be very, very patient, um, but also uh, quite a good knowledge of outdoors. And I'd say certainly clothing, um, knowing how to dress, knowing how to keep warm, keep dry, um, be comfortable. So, you know, a little bit of knowledge about nutrition, you know, and um, hydration so you're sort of drinking and eating the right amounts um you know it's the, the quite basic stuff really um knowledge of the outdoors but most importantly i would say especially when it comes to it is is knowing how to look after your kit because it's very easy to um go outside with the camera on a cold morning and then think oh god no the the lens is fogged up or something if it's been indoors overnight um or even just to find that you've got a smudge on the front of the lens because you've got a drop of rain and it ruins the shot so you've got to be absolutely retentively anal yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to be absolutely on it to know if something's happened. If it's a bit, a bit of rain, double check that lens filter every single time. You know, um, and also the other thing as well is practicing, not trying to hold the tripod too much as well. When you're doing those long lens pans, if you move slightly, the whole shot's going to judder. So especially if you're doing long lens work, especially 600 mil plus, you know, you really have to be have a a very good tripod head and be um, extremely steady hand, maybe even a remote or something, you know, if you can if you can afford one, because, um, you know, it works different budgets on filmmaking. Um, but I would say those are the basic sort of couple of points I would definitely recommend. Yeah, yeah. 
So you've been quite fortunate in what you've done. I was looking at the, you've got a world map on your website, which is really cool. You've, you know, you've shot in Antarctica, you've shot uh, all over Europe. Like, mm. what would you say is like your your favourite location? I, I would say probably Antarctica. Um, and that is a so place few that... people get to do that. Like, that's, you're so fortunate to be able to get to a location like that and yes. get paid for it i'm sure yes <laughs> and get paid and get paid for it yeah i mean the ticket alone to antarctica cost ten thousand pounds so you know it's a lot of oh, money wow. for a production to stump up you know so they have to know that you're the right person for the job and that you can do well at sea you can also do well with being away and also the isolation i mean when you're on a boat um for long periods of time as some of your listeners might have this but you <laughs> you, tie, you sort of start to get a bit of a sort of a sea madness you know you sort of tend to a little bit crazy you know you tend to get like i don't know it's just it's weird when you're at sea and you know going to a place like that where it's very remote you know you, you do have to really um focus your mind and focus on the job um because it is an awe-inspiring place you know and i yeah lucky to say that i've been to antarctica under the age of 30 um you know what which were I guess you shooting not, out there we were shooting a documentary um, about the UK overseas territories. Um, it's a four-part series um, for um, BBC Four, um, which was actually it was actually turned into a an acquisition for BBC Four because originally it wasn't a commission. Um, we just went out and made the film, and um, the director producer Stuart McPherson he basically funded the whole thing himself um, wow. and presented it as well. So we went to all of the all of the UK fourteen UK overseas territories, which was such an adventure. How Such long you, were you away for then? We we actually shot that documentary um, over the space of three years. So we would go away for blocks of between three to eight weeks. Those were the blocks of film that we did. And we'd come back for a couple of months, <laughs> see the family, do some work in between, and then head back out to the next destination. And, we, you know, we're talking about um, really remote destinations that are just not easy to get to. There's a lot of uh, connecting flights and small aircraft you know, ships, when uh, countless numbers of ships, um, to get to the places we were going, quad bikes, <laughs> you wow. name it, everything. With all your gear as well, <laughs> just on trailers with all of our and gear. on your back and things. Absolutely, with all our gear. And you know, we weren't shooting very hard budget stuff, so we just had a very basic camera, you know, very basic camera kit, um, including a couple of spare bits and bobs, you know, sort of spare tripod, um, you know, bits and bobs of the tripod that we needed, because um, a couple of times our Tripod. I won't mention any manufacturers, but they let us down a few times, and so we had to go and rebuy a new kit um, because we're really testing it to its max and shooting in some pretty harsh environments. You know, um, coast environments where as soon as the spray or sea mist hits the tripod, it's like instant death, really, because of course all the cheap metals it tends to get a lot of um, salt crustaceans on them. If you don't wash them down in time, then they get to, they tend to rust pretty quick. Um, so yeah, wow. coming back to the looking after your kit. <laughs> I mean, do you take spare cameras on? on shoots like that like we because of yeah replacement i'm sure when you're out in the middle of nowhere on a boat is now an impossible absolutely yeah we definitely take spare cameras we took a spare camera with us actually um and uh, yeah you, you might want to talk about later i think you're talking about disasters on shoots i can definitely share a few of you later on down the line on in this interview if you want <laughs> go well i mean go for it now you've teed it up so nicely well, tell me about yeah. a disaster Sure. Well, um, we we shot this documentary, gone around the world, and um, made this amazing film. And it was actually back at home um, on a shoot at home back at Lundy Island in Devon. And uh, after we, but all these hundreds of hours of travelling around the world after three years, um, had the tripod up on top of a um, a cliff top, and basically the wind caught it, and off it went down the cliff. <laughs> With like, the camera oh, on it. With the camera on it. Oh yeah, God. 
Yeah, so what did pretty, you do? Did you go after it or was it just gone for life? That's it. It was, yeah, it was in bits at the bottom of the cliff. Yeah. And I just thought, oh dear, after all that traveling, you know, this is probably about the right set of time for it to, <laughs> it to happen. It happened around the corner so, from your house. Rather than... It literally happened on the doorstep. Yeah. So it yeah. goes to show that, you know, you can go to all these locations around the world. You go to Antarctica, go to, um, you know, places that like we've been to Pitcairn, went to, um, you know, uh, St. Helena, Ascension Island in Caribbean, went to literally four corners of the globe and then it happens on the doorstep has there been um any occasion where you've you've gone out to the a location you've gone to film some wildlife and they just haven't they haven't turned up what's that the wildlife yeah because oh, I, I mean I'm a, yeah i'm a big a big fan of um obviously blue planet planet earth you know a huge mm. fan of wildlife stuff myself and i always look forward to the final segment where they go behind the lens and you see all the camera guys trudging around this is why i'm so excited for this interview mm. because you see the camera guys trudging around you know wherever you know go around india looking for a particular bit of wildlife mm. there's one guy that really jumps out uh, to the front of my mind and he was in a in a hide trying to film some otters for something like three months he was there for between 10 and 12 hours per day just camping you know in a, in a horrible little den you know really mm. really hot and humid and after three months hadn't seen a thing and then they were, like just about to pack away and this otter turns up and they got the shot but i can imagine all of those days where you're not getting anything you literally just you feel like you're wasting away it must be really really hard sort of physically and mentally to deal with like, yeah Happen. Well, that's the thing. Um, I think wildlife filmmaking is um, it's an extremely risky business, you know, for any um, for any company to invest in or any um, business to invest in. Because at the end of the day, you know, wildlife filmmaking is a business. Television is a business. And I think it's a very risky business because you can't always guarantee that wildlife is going to turn up. So you sort of have to um, almost, <laughs> you try and write a script, you try and write an idea beforehand, but you're never really going to know what you're going to get until you actually get there and you get feet on the ground and you can saturate yourself inside the environment and get um, what it is from the environment that you're trying to film. So sometimes you might have a story that's evolving before your very eyes and so you have to almost take on board that sort of script or narrative that's happening as, it, as it's going on in front of your eyes. So for me personally, there's been times, especially in Europe, where I've waited and waited and waited for wildlife to turn up and you know it hasn't and you can spend hours in a hide i was on a show recently doing a channel 4 show and um you know you're waiting in a hide for so so many hours and um the wildlife's not turning up you know it's it's not there so you have to what you have to do is you have to sort of mitigate and decide well if i can't get the shots now should i get out of the hide pack the hide away and then put the put the macro lens on and go and do some easy to film wildlife you know so there's some easy hits you know the bugs and the flowers and things like that because they're quite easy things to get um, so you have to, you're constantly reevaluating, you know, on a, on a, on a shoot about what you're, what you're trying to capture. Um, so, and what's so that's realistic. your decision. That's your decision, not a producer's decision. Well, it depends on if, if the producers say you have to get this species, you have to get this, um, you know, and I'll just remind you that I don't purely do wildlife. So, um, I'm not spending a lot of time in wildlife, but I presume if you're, if you are doing wildlife full time and you've got a producer saying you have to film this particular animal, then yeah, I think you, you know, you have to. Um, you have to stick with it and you have to film it. Um, but in circumstances that I've worked in, I've been the one that's been able to judge that, you know, because I've been the only person in the field. Um, or the producer knows that we're not going to get it because it's, it's, it's unlikely to happen in the time as well that we got on, on location. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Um, is there any kind of like specialist kit that you use? You know, you mentioned a telephoto lens up to 600mm, which I'm assuming is an absolute nightmare to operate. You know, do you use thermal cameras or anything cool like that? No, I mean, as I say, I'm not, I'm not, because I'm not in the filmmaking, you know, the wildlife filmmaking business full time, I don't invest in specialist kit because 
um, if you do it full time, you will have you know the, the the long macro lenses that you see. You've seen a great big long um, macro lenses that you can get, um, which can film ants, you know, on a pinhead, that sort of thing. They're very specialist pieces of kit that you can use, um, you know. But for instance, the long lens I've got, it's just a, um, it's a, it's actually a DSLR lens, um, and it's a very good one, um, you know. And that's about the only sort of specialist kit that I actually own, um, which I, which you know, um, most people could get hold of. Um, and the other thing, of course, that adds some great value to shots is things like cranes. You know, if you can um, add a crane shot, for instance, like we did, we were filming penguin colonies in Antarctica, and um, we used a crane down there, and it's a you know big chunky old Liebeck crane, and we were walking around with this on our shoulder, you know, across these you know sort of cold sort of tundras, um, you know, lugging this thing around with a bag of rocks <laughs> as a counterbalance. And it's incredibly good fun, you know, incredibly good fun, but seriously hard work. Um, really good fitness, definitely. So I would yeah. say, apart from the sort of standard kind of kit, there isn't anything too specialist that you need, apart from maybe the long macro lenses that you get. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think more the thing is, is just getting your head into the mental space of um, trying to find the wildlife and know where it is, and also having that sort of preparedness for, for the outdoors, really. What was a typical day like? On, on that sort of shoe like what sort of time did you get up what were your daily activities and sort of just give us a quick summary of what you did well obviously every day is completely different but the days that we were filming um you'd be anchored up in a very nice location already so you weren't feeling seasick and you know seasickness is a big issue down there you know you can I'll just quickly tell you, you know you could be so seasick that you you can't be sick anymore and then you have to worry about dehydration so you know there, there's several layers to those things so those days at sea you would get up and you try and eat some breakfast and you might watch a film or something when you're at sea. Um, but the filming days, you know, some, most places that we, we would, we would um, anchor up and be nice and sheltered. So you get up and, you know, see the sunrise, have some breakfast or some porridge, um, get some coffee on the go, get your filming kit together, you know, out the hold. Um, and then you would um, sit around the table, get a bit of a plan together with the producer or director um, and the rest of the crew. Um, and then you would put everything onto your rib. So you put your oil skins on and your jackets and everything's nice and warm for the day. Jump on a little um, rib, rigid inflatable boat, um, which would be, or Zodiac as they're called. Um, they, in, in, in down Antarctica, they call them Zodiacs. I'm not sure if they call them that elsewhere, but um, it's quite a popular term. So you drop, the, drop that into the water with a crane. You'd then jump on the boat and you'd be taken ashore. Um, you'd have radios and you basically communicate back to the boat when you want to be picked up. Um, and then you'd go off and you'd go and you'd go and shoot, you know, you'd go and sort of um, go and find your subjects and they weren't hard to find. I mean, you know, you're talking about going, going on shore, for instance, we went to a place called Salisbury Plain, um, same as the same spelling as the Salisbury Plain in, um, in the UK. And um, you'd go ashore and instantly you're surrounded by 500,000 penguins. You know, and oh my God. you've got penguins coming up to you and they're sort of looking at you and trying to work out what you are and they're blinking going, what are you? You know, because down there... They you're, have a big, got, you're a big penguin, aren't you? Yeah, they just don't have the predators, you know, like that we, we, you know, we did used to hunt penguins, you know, in sort of olden days, when the whaling days. Um, but now they, they quite, quite happily come up to you and they're inquisitive and they peck your tripod, you know, there's a couple of times they came and peck my tripod and would come and try and... Um, check out what you are and you know these we were filming king penguins and um the kings of slightly more colorful than the emperors the emperors are bigger but they've got uh, the kings have got this more of a brighter orange crest on them underneath their chin um and so they sort of stand out so sort of slightly more colorful but a little bit smaller and they're about they stand about hip height so they're quite a big bird to come up you know um and the uh, little fluffy chicks these sort of fluffy hot water bottles that kind of 
stand there and sway in the wind, you know, and uh, look very cute. So, um, yeah, then, yeah, so that would sort of be a filming day and you come back ashore, sorry, come back to the boat um, and maybe have a, <laughs> maybe a little uh, aperitif at the end of the day with made with an iceberg, maybe a little gin and tonic with some iceberg in it. And uh, yeah, that would round off a day in Antarctica. Oh, it sounds perfect. Sounds absolutely perfect. My favourite animal in the world is a penguin. Oh, so I'm looking forward. I'd love to go out and film them one day. Oh, they're very, they're very photogenic. There's a few there's a few pictures on my website actually. In fact, I shall have to um, email the link to my Flickr page. It's got a whole hundreds of photos of penguins on there. So I'll have to email that for this interview. Yes, please do. So um, I recently read a fact that species extinction is happening a thousand times faster mm. because of human into basically humans damaging. Um, habitats, which is a horrible fact to hear. Are your days numbered as a as a wildlife cameraman? Do you think, or are mm. you when you're out on locations, do you see uh, improvement with sort of mm. more more environmental awareness from people? What what are your thoughts? Well, I would say um, I would say it, it it's kind of you know it it is awful. I mean, I I spotted this this catastrophe happening when I was a boy I could see the plastic going to the ocean I knew what was happening to the environment and it seems only now quite literally 20, 30 years later that everyone's waking up to it and it and it's it's mad it's absolute madness and it's a shame that it takes a big show like Blue Planet to make the masses realize that we're losing our um we're losing our environment you're losing the wildlife you know on the planet and it's it it's sort of I don't know if it makes me worry it makes me um think about how we're going to innovate because we're going to be, you know, we're obviously going to be living in a world that's going to be changing quite rapidly. Um, you know, and I don't, I don't necessarily think it's so much a case of putting us out the job. I think it's just a case of reinventing the wheel of how we tell new stories in an ever changing planet, because just like, just like the planet is in a constant state of flux and so is the industry and so is television and we're shaped by the environment, we're shaped by the stories around us. So we are, we are just led by, what's currently going on um so I, i'm not particularly worried about it no um i look forward to be able to get the messages out there though because yeah. there's constantly always space to get more programs about the environment on television you know and i think they've been dumbed down way too much in the previous years i think it's time to really really um ramp up you know sort of television um you know program making about the environment because it's um i don't know if you saw a recent show called um Drowning Plastic with Liz Bonin recently. No. Very good. Really, really good documentary. She hitting some really hard facts in that film, and that's uh, that was that was a really good one. Yeah. Um, to do the environment. Are you quite sort of environmentally conscious personally? You know, if you spend oh, a lot of time yeah. outdoors, you spend a lot of time yes. outside surfing as well as as well as working. Yeah. You know, are you environmentally conscious? Do you? Yeah, I. I would say yeah. Through pretty 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 diehard really. I do. The only challenge I do find hard is trying to keep away from plastic. I mean, it's it's everywhere, you know. Everything you buy is in plastic, and it's um, it's incredibly hard. But myself, yeah, very environmentally conscious. Um, we live on the coast here, and we've got some um, quite regularly. We have beach cleans, so we go down, pick up um, lots and lots of litter where we can. Um, we're obviously, fully aware of um, right down to who we use as electricity suppliers, you know. Um, there's some great electricity suppliers out there, domestic this is, you know, who provide energy from just windmills and, uh, you know, wind turbines and uh, solar panels. Mm. So they're quite good, um, qu quite good things to people to be on board with. And it doesn't cost anything extra. 
you know, it's just choice. It's it's just people's choice, you know. And I think that being environmentally aware is, you know, is is just a it's a choice. It's definitely a choice. Um, so yeah, I've always I've always been environmentally aware because I've always been interested in the environment. I've always thought if we're going to continue an environment that's going to continue thriving, you know, then we we have to we have to be environmentally conscious. Yeah. There's no other option. You know, I was brought up right on the edge of a forest, you know, up in Hampshire and I didn't have time back under my feet for about half a mile and the nearest pub and shop were, you know, a mile, mile and a half away. So um, I've constantly been aware of the environment around me, the, the natural environment. Yeah, absolutely. It's very important. I mean, it's funny you should mention beach cleans. I did a documentary in January of uh, 2018, so this year, about mm. the um, the plastic that comes in off the uh, the Irish Sea, so sort of mm. on the Anglesey coast. Mm. And uh, we, the documentary is called Plastic Tide. And it was about, you know, once in the morning or once in the afternoon, the tide will come in and in comes a load of plastic out from the ocean that's been swept in. So every single day, groups of volunteers go out and have to beach beach and pick up all this plastic waste that's sort of washed in. And then the tide goes out and the beach is nice and clean and the tide comes in and the same thing happens over and over and over again because the sheer volume of plastic in the ocean at the moment is just incredible. And they're trying to do their bit, but I think you're right in just, just reducing what you actually purchase in the first mm. place is going to have a, a very, very large yeah. impact. Redu- yeah, reducing it. But also, you know, it's all very well recycling. It's all very well you know, doing all these great things, all this plastic waste, but the trouble is it's not stopping it being produced. What needs to happen is it needs to stop being produced. Um, you know, and there's some very smart guys around the world at the moment who are producing, um, you know, bottles made from kelp. You know, yeah. they're just literally, literally just using, I think the, uh, the, the um, I'm not sure exactly what the exact scientific term is, but they're basically turning the, the algae or the, from the kelp or something into a, into a sort of a bottle or a plastic, you know, some sort of plastic which, you know, yeah, biodegrades it, in the planet. Yeah, it biodegrades over the course of two months or something like that. Something ridiculous. As opposed to mm. 400 years which a plastic bottle takes to degrade. And we, oh, it's, we've it's, not, it's, it's insane, It's isn't terrible. It? It's terrible. And you know what, Cal? I mean, you know, we, we, we've got some big sandy beaches near us. You know, and one year I went up there, I think it was last winter, and this is a three-mile stretch of beach. This is Wollacombe up in North Devon. You're, I don't know if your listeners are local, but they know the beach. But lovely big surf beach. I mean, it was one of the beaches that attracted me to Devon. And um, it was just... I remember one year I went up there and the whole beach was covered in nurdles, the little plastic pellets, which oh, yeah. are the basis of all plastic production. And I, I went through and I just spent 10 minutes just picking up a bag of these things. And that bag sits on my desk every day. It reminds me of my mission if it will you know for the for my work you know which yeah. is just to communicate with people about about the environment or about issues you know issues which affect all of our daily lives yeah yeah okay i mean i mean i could talk about the environment for hours and hours and hours but i'm going to just flip yeah. the, the conversation on its head a little bit you said you when you went away you were away for blocks of like between two and three months at a time like how do you sort of manage that personally you know being away from friends and family for such long periods of time mm. it's it's um it's not easy. Um, it's it's hard. Um, I would say that um, I've got a very understanding wife, um, you know, and I think you have to, if you're going to go into this, you have to ha- you have to go in with the mind knowing that you have to let all your family around you know what you're doing, especially close loved ones, because the reality of it is that you can be away for months at a time, you know, um, and it can be it can be quite lonely, um, you know, and. So the way we managed it, for instance, when we went to Antarctica, is we had um, a, a, a tiny little tablet PC, which, which lived up in the little wheelhouse of this boat, um, the Hans Hansen that we were on. And um, 
this little tablet, you could type out emails to your family and the, the captain would do a send and receive up to the satellite every, this is satellite, so basically satellite data, um, once a day. So you send your little message, it can only be text because it was, you know, if you had an attachments, it would obliterate the inboxes. So, you know, just a 15 kilobyte message would cost five pounds, you know, so you really <laughs> have to be very careful with your data. Um, so we would just send these little text emails to each other every day and just getting those words back when you're filming away, just to know um, how your family are, how they're doing, you know, how how the, you know how lot how life is back home is is just just enough to keep you sort of sane, you know, if you will. And so yeah, using technology such as WhatsApp all the time, using um, email, sending pictures to each other, you know, I think that that's how we manage it. That's how we yeah. manage it, and we sort of think, you know. I'm away working, we're doing this one for the team, you know, doing it for the family, but also keeping an interesting career going because there isn't many other things in life I think I'd want to do. Um, yeah. So we know that. We, I mean, my wife knew that going into when she met me. She knew I was a this travelling filmmaker um, who loved to, or cameraman, who loved to travel around the world doing these things. So yeah. she knew up front, and I think it's hard if you go into it with someone or, or, or a partner who doesn't know or understand it or perhaps if you start developing it over years and I think it's going to be perhaps harder maybe yeah um yeah we you know line up lots of things when we come home so we say we get home we're going to go down the beach and we're going to do this we're going to do that um yeah that's how we manage it I think um yeah and talking lots and we do lots yeah, of talking. communication yeah. yeah exactly exactly I think it's fascinating how you know with like technology and social media you kind of think that the the world's a tiny tiny place you know you've got this amazing powerful phone in your pocket where you can ask it anything mm. and learn anything about the world within a second yeah. you've got 4g almost everywhere you go and now you're talking about being in places that are so remote that mm. you're having to send you know you know bits of data that's costing you absolute fortune it's obviously yeah. going by satellite links and all that sort of stuff because there, there are no there is no connectivity there i think it's just quite interesting to think well the world's a very very large place mm. and there's mm. still so it, much it is. sort of learning it about is. it and it's 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 easy to forget that it's a bit like a it's a bit like a wormhole, you know. You sort of if you go through a work, imagine you go through a wormhole, it sort of knits back together very huge amounts of space in a very small dimension. But the data does that, the internet does that, the technology does that. But um, actually, when you think about it, the world, is a huge place, and actually the places that are only inhabited by humans is actually relatively concentrated, you know, into towns and cities and other areas, you know. And you fly over. I was in China a couple of weeks ago, and you fly over you know sort of this would have been probably just north of the tibetan plateau just to russia so you look down and you just can't see anything for miles any absolutely anything and so you just just see a desert and so i was looking down i could just see little tiny little tracks going through the snow you know of, of some sort of vehicle you know and then you could see the tracks and splaying off in other directions and and it just reminds you that there's people out there living and they can't they're hunting they're going out hunting every day or transiting across this land and it makes you realise actually, you know, this we, we live in a huge world and there's so much unexplored stuff. There's so much out there we don't know and so much stuff that's still to be explored. Mm. So, yeah. Amazing. It's, um, mm, it's only as good as... The thing is, I always think about the internet and news and it's only as good as the people that create the content that go on it. Of course, of course. That's their reality. You know, it's everyone's reality. So it's um, always good to go around the world with a fresh pair of eyes, so to speak. Mm. Um, so you mentioned you, you had a full-time job and then you kind of transitioned into being a freelance freelance filmmaker. And obviously you've said that wildlife filmmaking isn't necessarily a full-time job. Like what kind of other stuff do you do? So when I was, you know, early 20s, I started a job, um, full-time job as a, um, a graphic designer in a corporate video production company. 
um, up in a, um, a little town called Farnham, which is near London. I'm sure many of your listeners have, have heard of Farnham. Um, heard of London, yeah. Heard of London, <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, so it, I started work up there. Um, I sort of, yeah, sort of managed to blow my way into working in this um, corporate video production company just because I, I showed made a show reel and. You know, they like my sort of this creative style that I come up with in the show reel and a couple other bits and bobs. And I worked there for a year and I, I, I got to travel around the world doing sort of travel photography and um, promote promotions for sort of a travel company, big travel company um, that does cruise lines um, around the world. And so we, we did a lot of traveling, a lot of editing, did a lot of corporate video production for them. Um, and I then was promoted to sort of a senior um, video editor. But in the back of my mind was always this sort of burning desire to want to just get out and make stories and go and film things and um, try and try and capture the sort of the essence of, 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 of good storytelling, you know, good storytelling and great images. Um, and so I just basically, word of the month, said, OK, I've, I've, I'm going to give my notice in. So I gave my notice in. In the meantime, I sort of then... Um, found a little office to rent nearby um, and started trading back in, I think it was April 2009, I think it was, and that was when I went self-employed and I've, I've never looked back. I mean, I've struggled. My God, I've struggled in the past. Not now, but I did at the start. I really, really struggled. You know, it was very hard work. And with I struggled think... with what? Like the finding the work or managing a business? Or... Yeah, finding, finding the work, you know, keeping the clients going, you know, building new client relations, you know, because... Back in those days, I was doing a lot more, well, I was doing purely 100% corporate video, but I sort of wasn't so passionate about it. I just wanted to go into being a cameraman and telling great stories. And um, so I sort of, was it this kind of like balance of, okay, I don't want to rush this, but I still need to make a living to be able to enable myself to spend the time to go and explore the career options as a cameraman um, doing wildlife. So those early years are quite hard and getting that balance right. It's certainly a learning curve that we all have mm. to go through. <laughs> it's a big learning curve. It's a big learning curve, and it's um, it's not easy. It's it's not easy. You know, I'll be completely honest. I don't think it's a very easy career to do because it's a it's a very um, it's a very busy market. There's a lot of people doing some really great stuff out there, um, and I think you, you know you've got to really stick at it. Definitely. Yeah. So without getting too political, obviously there's, there's a big thing happening in the UK in March of 2019. Mm -hmm. um, it's been <laughs> publicised a lot, known as Brexit. You mm -hmm. know, uh, yeah. how do you think that's going to affect your your work as as of an international filmmaker and traveller? I actually don't think it's going to have a huge impact um, on on what we do. Uh, I'm actually secretly sort of. I, I quite like opportunity, you know, and I think I'm secretly quite excited about it because it could it could create some very new opportunities for us. You know, we're human beings. We adapt really well to change. You know, everyone thinks, oh, doom and gloom and Brexit and stuff. But as I said, like the environment is this state of constant flux, you know, the natural environment. So, you know, with Brexit, it's just another it's just another evolution of 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 society, just like it is in the natural world. So actually, I don't I hope it won't <laughs> shoot myself in the foot now. I really hope it doesn't make much of an impact, um, but I don't think it will. I really hope it doesn't. Good. Let's stay positive. I yeah, mean, that's the key. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. How do you find you sort of go about getting your work? Mm. Like, do you, you get a lot of work through referrals now or do you get it through social or through your website? Like, how does that work for you? It, it used to be, it used to be when I started, I had to really look around a lot and you know it was it was a constantly daily battle but I think once you sort of become a bit more known you know around sort of the industry and especially once you start having 
a bit more experience and stuff from pe- people production companies sort of see what you're doing you know people tend to refer you a lot more so these days I get sort of calls from clients of clients who say oh we hear you've been working with such and such and you know do you want to come and work on this and you know of course you know I'd love to and um, so a lot of it is mouth to mouth you know there's a lot of um, sort of um, spoken referrals but I also get a lot of um, funnily enough I also get a lot of requests through Google Google seems to um, Google businesses for instance I set Google businesses up for my my camera um, work a, a few years ago and I seem to get so many requests for specifically um, production companies coming down from London who want to shoot stuff in the southwest they're always calling me and saying oh you're around on such and such a date we've got this little story to do here or there um, so yeah both online and also word of mouth is mainly how I how I follow up leads um, I tend to find that it's a bit soul destroying if you're sending endless emails to production companies um, I know I advised it earlier on in the interview, but you know when you've been doing it for so long and you you you, you keep doing that, sometimes it it can be a little bit soul destroying. So um, other other ways and means are better uh, than always emailing cold, if you know what I mean. Yeah. How long do you think it took you to sort of become settled or, or comfortable, as it were? You said the first couple of years were quite tough, mm. you know, dealing with knockbacks here, there, and everywhere. Mm. Like, how long mm. do you think it takes for it to sort of get steady? Do you think? I think for some people um, in industry, I think it doesn't take very long. It might take uh, a couple of years or something and you'll be in. If you've been studying and you've built some contacts on the ground or you've got some family or friends that work in the industry, you can get a position. You can go quite fast. But I think for me personally, um, I would say probably about six or seven years, I would say. I would say, yeah. Yeah, probably about that. Yeah, maybe slightly six, maybe slightly, slightly less. Um, but that's only but don't forget that's that's subjective so that's my perception of success that's my perception of what I define as being a successful cameraman or a successful creative (laughs) if you will yeah 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 absolutely you know you 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 made the jump 10 years ago to being self-employed do you think you'd ever go back to being employed again I think I'm completely and utterly unemployable, to be honest. <laughs> I don't think I'd last your five skill, minutes. Your skill sets are so niche. It's the freedom, yeah. I find, isn't it's it? The that it's, it's hard to pass up. It's the freedom count. I don't think I could. I, I did try it once and I failed miserably. And it was literally, I didn't even get past the interview. I was like, I just can't do this. You know, I, I, I've i also had people that have wanted me to go full time and I've just thought, I can't do this for the rest of my life. I can't, you can't even do it for a month. You know, I have to be a free agent. You know, it's, um, it's just part of it. It's um, just somebody, it's just who I am, you know, it's my makeup, <laughs> it's my DNA. So what would you say to someone who wanted to specifically shoot wildlife video and get into wildlife filmmaking? Like, what kind of steps would they take to get started, do you think? Yeah, uh, I would say um, the first thing you're going to need to do is be really outgoing. Um, and the second thing, which you'll find out at the very end of it, is never give up. Ever, ever, ever give up because... Some of the, the worst times you can spend are actually, in some reflection, some of the best times because what you're doing is you're teaching yourself over and over again that you're going to have many failures before you succeed. So you need to get a real veneer of steel, you know, before you go out and do it or certainly know that because it's, it, you're going to get knocked back lots of times. So I would say knowing that going into it would have helped me <laughs> if I was younger. If I'd known that going into it, I think that would have helped me. And the second thing is... Um, Go and talk to people, go and talk to people, go and pick up the phone and talk to people. Talk to people who, look at the companies that you want to work for, look at the production companies and, and think to yourself, do I, want to, do I want to work with this company? And if you want to work with them, 
and send them an email or give them a call and see if there's something that you can do to help them, you know, whether it be um, production assisting, making the tea, you know, um, some sort of internship or something. And if you do get there and you do, you do manage to get that, then go and soak up as much information as possible. Just be an absolute leech and just be like a sponge and listen to absolutely everything everyone's saying and try and get, if you're going to be a camera operator, I would say try and get as much hands-on experience you can on kit as possible. So learning about what lens mounts, um, you know, what, what kind of lens mounts there are, all the cameras that are out there, what cameras coming onto the market, what the current um, fashions and trends are and sensor sizes and what kind of lenses are out there, what the speed of the lenses do to the image, you know, all that kind of stuff, real bad experience will just put you in a great, great place. It really will, especially if you're looking at doing camera operating. If it's, if it's filmmaking in general, obviously you'll need to know about editing as well. So you can grab, um, so easy to get, you know, editing software online, you know, you've got Final Cut Pro. I mean, I use the Premiere, which I absolutely, absolutely love. <laughs> it's such love a and great... Love for when it crashes, even though you've just updated it. <laughs> yeah. What's that, Premiere? Low, yeah, just it's one. It's that software. I've used Premiere for over ten years, and I absolutely love it. And I wouldn't go anywhere else. But for some reason, mm. you can be in the middle of a project, and it's going smoothly, and it'll just turn off for no rhyme or mm. reason. It just kind of shits itself, and that's just Premiere for you. I think. Oh, it suddenly crashes, doesn't it? And then you have to open the recovery project. Yeah, and yes. I don't know why they've not ironed yeah. that out. You know, even now, it just I know. blows my mind. But it's. I still look at what um, I know. The local BBC unit down here use um, Final Cut Pro and. I've, I've looked at people using it and I just see a world of pain. <laughs> I know I shouldn't really, I should really give it a, you know, try and learn the whole new FCPX thing, but, and I know a lot of people rave about it, but I haven't really sort of learnt the, the, the new edition of it, you know, so to speak. I used to be on Final Cut 7 a lot, um, but then moved over to Premiere as soon as it went to X and never looked back since really. But, you know, it's sources for courses. People, editors will choose various editing platforms for their own reasons and also because of commercial reasons as well if the production company they're working with have got that as their mainstay then that's what they use so um just sort of coming to a close obviously very respectful of your time what would you say of your, your sort of future aspirations as, as a filmmaker what have you got planned what have i got planned um well i currently feel i'm only about 25 percent through my journey i still feel like i've um after 10 years of doing this i feel like i've only just begun if Do I'm you mind honest. if I ask how old you are? 34. So I start. yeah, 24 is when I went in to it all. Um, blind it. <laughs> what kind blind. of stuff do you want to do? Like, what have you got your eyes set on? Obviously, it's nice to dream. Uh, I would really love to go into doing feature documentary. Um, you know, shot on the best camera kit I can possibly afford to get hold of and make the images look the best they can possibly be, with the best stories they can possibly be. You know, maybe doing stuff for Netflix or Amazon or I don't know, more stuff for the BBC. You know, there's so much space these days for producing content. You know, there's so many platforms that you can produce content for. So for me, it's just about being better at what I do. I'm never good enough. I'm never going to be good enough. So it's just about bettering what I already do and making what I do twice as better, three times, five times, <laughs> ten times. <laughs> <laughs> amazing no i love it i'd love to do a netflix documentary as well it'd be amazing um, it would be, wouldn't so it? where can where can people find out more about you are you on social or have you got a website or anything like that yeah my website is www.simonvasherfilm.com and um you can also find me on facebook um i've also got a twitter page as well which is also under the same name just simon vasher film um or films i think it's one of the two 
Um, and we've also got a company called Butterfly Effect Films, which is a partnership I've got with a writer-director here based in um, Devon. Um, so you can find both of us online with those names. And the website for Butterfly Effect Films is www.butterflyeffectfilms.com. Cool. I'll put all those links in the show. I love how you put the www. That was so cute. I'll <laughs> definitely put that in the show notes. But um, I, I mean, Simon, that was amazing. Is there anything else you'd like, sort of like to add before we, we come to a close? Yeah, I think just the one thing I'd like to say is if, if it's anybody who's listening out there who, um, you know, wants to chat or anything, um, just wants some advice, please just give me a call. I mean, or, you know, email. I get quite a few emails asking me questions and things like that, you know, and my one piece of advice would be just to preempt anybody asking, never, ever give up, <laughs> never give up. Whatever it is, whatever you want to do, just don't give up on it. I love it. Thank you very much, Simon. And, You're uh, most welcome. Have a great day. Thank you.